Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Because it's time. It's, it's time for reparations. LGBTIQ rights are black rights. We have always been here. Black queers, we will always be here. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me or sound like me. I'm Gary Foley. I'm Francesca Ramsey. This is Amir Rahman. And you're listening to The Race Card. Yes, you're listening to The Race Card. Welcome to Sin 90.7 FM. And the time is just over three. Uh, I don't know the specifics, but hey, you know, it's radio. You know, yeah. uh, I'm Ahmed Yusuf, your host for this afternoon's show. And before we begin, we'll be doing an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land on which we meet and pay our respects to their elders, both past and present. This land was never ceded and the process of colonization, occupation and incarceration that began and genocide that began over two centuries ago continued to this day. You're listening to our one-hour show where we chat politics, current affairs, popular culture with a little bit of a twist, as well as wrapping up the most thought-provoking issues of the week in Australia. Today we have a special interview with Maxine Benham-McClark, talk about the Oromo protests and the significance between uh, about that, talking Black Voices, which was on yesterday, and Trump's ban all Muslims. And we have a featured discussion on Muslim schools. Don't forget to get involved in all the discussions by texting in 024, no, 027-767-767 or tweet us using the handle at the race card. And my co-hosts and guests for this afternoon's show are... Arundhati. And... Maxine Benipa-Clark. <laughs> um, yeah, and Maxine... It's been it's it's really great having you on the show, and we've been talking about getting on for some time. And I guess tell us a little bit of yourself, and give us give our listeners who may not have heard of Maxine Benjamin Clark yet, <laughs> but will very very soon, about who you are. Uh, so um, I'm a writer. Um, I'm of Afro-Caribbean heritage, Australian-born, and I started out primarily as a slam poet. Um, so kind of doing performance poetry um, around the place and um, more recently I've published um, a collection of stories called Foreign Soil. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess uh, you're of Afro-Caribbean descent mm-hmm. and I think potent- also British? Yeah, well my parents uh, grew up in London. They were both born in the West Indies, so in Jamaica and Guyana, but they both grew up in London and then migrated to Australia um, in the mid-70s. Interesting. And I guess a lot of people think of, um, a lot of black Afro-black people in the Caribbean are of Caribbean descent and uh, actually at Black Voices we, we had a colour come on and he was talking about Brixton, mm-hmm. about in the 70s and 80s basically being Jamaica, basically. You, you yeah. were in a different place. Mm. 
And where did I guess where did your parents grow? Uh, where did your parents live when they were in uh, the UK? Um, so they they lived in various places: um, Tottenham, Walthamstow. But I guess yeah, around that time, the kind of um, late sixties to late seventies, there was um, kind of like, the first generation, I guess, of um, British-born. Um, people from the Caribbean. Um, migration started kind of around the mid-50s. And so you suddenly had this generation of black kids that essentially were British-born, but with Caribbean roots. So I think that kind of fostered a really particular culture in certain areas of London. Interesting. And I, I guess um, I know um, from a friend, a mutual friend of ours, that you went to um, the Slavery Museum in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. How was that? Yeah, I was I was researching the second of so I've got a memoir coming out later next year called The Hate Race, which is really about growing up black in middle class Australia, white middle class Australia. And as a kind of I guess sequel to that, I wanted to go back and try and trace my family's roots. So um, I was awarded something called the Hazel Rowley Fellowship for Biography, which allowed me to go to London at the start of this year in January and do a bit of a research trip. And yeah, one of the places I went to was the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool, which was absolutely haunting, um, as you can imagine. I mean, I kind of, you know, you know a lot about slavery from reading, from watching documentaries or Hollywood Hollywoodizations of the slave trade, but to actually go there and see the extent of it and see original kind of items of torture and testimonies from slaves was just horrific, yeah. Must have been, I guess, very kind of... Because obviously being of Afro-Caribbean descent, a lot of a lot of the slaves were from from that part of the world and i guess specifically with your parents living there for some time as well must have brought up some some memory not necessarily memories but just some scars you didn't know were there yeah, absolutely. I mean, we kind of talk about racism as if it's this contemporary thing, forgetting that it has this, you know, hundreds and hundreds of year history of, you know, black people being suppressed by white people, beaten by white people, raped by white people. And I think we just kind of often don't think of that. We think of racism as someone yelling some something on a train. But to actually go, oh, yeah, you know, this actually has a really serious foundation and the things that were done at that time are really the basis for contemporary racism. And I guess people don't usually think about racism and, and kind of like resource, ex- resource extraction and think mm. about the loss of land, the loss of wealth, the loss of, of history. Mm. Absolutely. And I did a lot of kind of talks when I was there, so tours of London and things like that. And one of the um, tours that I did was you went around and looked at various um, motifs. And there was things like, you know, the, the Cutler's Guild of London, who their emblem is like two elephants holding up a shield because they were using ivory from taken from India for the handles of the cutlery. And so there's kind of this massive legacy of just you know, conquering and raping the entire world to get these resources that he's kind of left in Britain that that doesn't really get talked about that often now. You know, it's kind of like, oh, that was the past and this is now. But, I mean, that's kind of the foundation of, of the division of the world, you know, the third world and the first world. Why do you think there's not necessarily that discussion, particularly in Britain, because we usually associate discussions of race to, to America. America is the most racist place in the world um, and, and things like that. But we don't usually talk about if there was no Britain, they'd not be in America. Mm. They'd not be the people, the origins of the people the, of white Americans stem from, from, 
from from Britain, basically. Mm, yeah, it's a really interesting one. I mean, I think it's partly that kind of faux politeness of, of English society that you just don't talk about things that were, you know, in the past. And even, I think even I interviewed some family members of my grandmother's generation, and even some of them were reluctant to actually, when I interviewed them about, you know, how were things when you arrived in England and, you know, what, what was the racism like, very reluctant to talk about those things because I think it's that... Um, that generational, you know, you don't want to upset the status quo, you don't want to go into talking about these disturbing things, you just get on with life. Interesting. <laughs> uh, Renathy? Oh, I was just, um, I just heard that some of your work is being taught in schools. Mm. I was just wondering, how do you feel about um, the importance of diverse education in terms of writing and in terms of um, what is being taught in especially Australian schools and British schools? I think it's really, really important that we have diverse um, voices on the school curriculum. I mean, when I was at school, it was like Shakespeare, George Orwell, Jane Austen. That was pretty much all there was. I think the closest thing to my experience was like looking for Alla Brandi, yeah. which was about an Italian girl, you know. And um, yeah, so to have my work, there's a few local schools in the kind of West that are studying my work, like uh, Werribee Secondary College is doing it for year 11. And I think to have stuff that um, is not necessarily set in white Australia and for kids to see reflections of themselves um, it's just it's so important you know I, I didn't encounter literature like that until I was out of high school and I think had I been exposed to black writers or you know non-anglo Australian writers in an early age it would have made my journey so much easier like um, I remember uh, I'm pretty sure everyone's seen Chimamanda's um, uh, TED talk about the single story mm. and if you haven't check it out and she she basically said she couldn't conceptualize African or, or specifically to her um, her where she's from Nigerian writers she could not conceptualize a story that included herself or someone who looked like her mm. and exactly reading writing um visual kind of like movies and and tv and everything like that change our perspective change our i guess the way we see the world how how impactful is reading diverse writers reading black and brown people talking about their stories I think it's huge. I mean, particularly when you're young, it validates your life and your experience. And it says, one, that your experience is important enough to go down in writing and go down in history. And also that you have the right to tell your story. I think when I started out in creative writing, I was writing about white people. You know, like I was a student in high school and I just never gave any thought to making a character a brown person because it was like, there's no Australian stories with you know, non-Indigenous black people in them. How can I write that kind of thing? So I think just that going, oh, yeah, you know, I, um, when I went to Werribee High School, they kind of went, one of your stories is set in Footscray. You know, we all know Footscray. We've been there. We've eaten there. We've, you know, lived there. And it was kind of this um, realisation that, yes, you know, our experience is important and it does, it's a story that does deserve to be told. Yeah, definitely. Um, and also, I, you you did this very like it still resonates m with me today. Um, your poem at the Cornell West event um, a few months ago, when you mm. talked about um, what we know today as AFL mm. and uh, and Mangrok, mm. and uh, I guess talk to us about that and the process of of your writing. Mm. 
So yeah, it's a poem called um, Mangrook, and essentially it was inspired by um, the Adam Goods story. Not so much this year, but kind of um, the first incident that happened where a 13-year-old girl was racially abusing him, and just came from me, I guess, watching that and thinking this is absurd because this is an Indigenous game that we're talking about. This is somebody playing an Indigenous game on their own land, which has been stolen from them. And I think that just those basic facts weren't talked about. You know, it was all about kind of, should Adam Goods be tougher? Should we hold this 13-year-old girl responsible? You know, maybe it was her parents' fault. And those kind of fundamental um, discussion of why this might be wrong or why this might be upsetting wasn't there. And so I wanted to write a spoken word piece that spoke to that and that kind of explored um, this history of dispossession and, you know, that thing of having to stand on your stolen land, sing a national anthem that doesn't speak to your experience, that's not your, not sung in your language, and then at the end of all of that to have this experience where someone is abusing you. Um and yeah, I mean, it's a piece that I took a, quite a long time to write. And um, I guess I was really mindful of, you know, I'm not an Indigenous person. How do I speak to this experience without kind of co-opting the Indigenous voice or experience? Interesting. Like, um, I guess in a, in, a, in a more broader sense with your writing, how do you, what is, what is your process? And, and I guess how have you... Um, found your own voice while writing with in mind of, as you said, you started writing about white people and you didn't conceptualise a time when you could write about someone who looked just, who, who looked like you mm-hmm. and who had similar experiences. Um, I think that's just come with time and also reading broadly. I think the fact that I was never exposed at, at high school to people like Toni Morrison or Alice Walker or people who weren't necessarily writing into my experience or even, you know, Indigenous writers, we didn't read any. I think Sally Morgan was on the um, curriculum, but we didn't study it. And um, so just being exposed to other writers and realising that actually there are thousands of thousands of stories out there and if my story is not out there, then maybe I need to write it. You know, maybe that's something I can do. I guess, like, on that note, how did you find the process of trying to get published as a as a black writer, mm. especially within Australia with, I guess, a kind of small group of black writers here? Mm. Uh, very difficult. <laughs> um, my poetry I published with, I was lucky enough to find a really small press, um, a Picaro Press, which now um, I think has been acquired by Janinda, a press in, in Adelaide. But... Um, um, Rob Real there really liked my poetry and was willing to put it out but it was a very small one-man operation so it was pretty much he would produce the books and everything else was up to me so in terms of promoting it trying to get it into bookstores um, was quite difficult and then with Foreign Soil my short fiction collection I probably spent about two and a half years trying to get it published um, and it did the rounds, you know, did the rejection rounds of almost every publisher in Australia, I reckon, and then eventually won something called the Premier's Award for an unpublished manuscript and that was very much a door opener. You know, every single thing that's happened in my career in the last kind of two years stemmed from winning this competition, which I think is, is, is great but also quite sad because I think there are many versions of me out there who won't win one of these competitions and whose work is probably as good, you know, if not better than mine. And so I guess I hope that as more people of colour get published, you know, doors start to open. One of the things 
um, I'd really like to ask you about is the the idea of the black writer and adding that that extra element to it, and then this idea that because you are a black writer or a person of color writing um, about anything, basically, it has to inadvertently be political. And you have to, in a sense, perform, whether it be blackness, um, for a crowd. And I guess, how do you um, navigate that while trying to, to just write what you, what you want to write? Mm. I guess for a long time, I wasn't navigating that. I wanted to talk about blackness because I felt the narrative wasn't out there. And it's only really in the last year that I've started to go, okay, I feel like I've dealt with the things I want to deal with in terms of putting my version of the story out there or representing people like me. Um, how do I now go forward? And and I've been lucky enough to have been thrown a few opportunities outside of that. So I do a bit of work for the Saturday paper, writing profiles um, of, you know, just basically interesting people that I meet <laughs> along the road um, or, you know, people like um, actors or, um, you know, chefs, comedians. Um, and so that's been really great for me in terms of going, okay, I don't just have to write about race. It is interesting and fun to do other things. And also that external recognition that, you know, yes, we don't have to just call Maxine when something happens that's race related and we need an opinion piece. And I think that can be a danger that um, writers of colour get boxed in not only internally but externally by editors and by publishers. It's like, no, you have to write that race narrative. Do you feel that is, in a sense, limiting as well? Because um, for me as well, like uh, in my writing, in not obviously not into the scale of, of, of yours, obviously, but in the sense of feeling that you have to economize, economize, no, econ- I'm trying to say... Economize? Economize, <laughs> yeah. yes. Economize your trauma, basically. And how that's more a sense acceptable in a very mainstream white audience who, in a sense, by listening or reading your writing feels, in a sense, more moral and more mm. upstanding. Mm. I think absolutely. I think particularly in memoirs, um, white readers love the the black or the writer of colour trauma narrative that, you know, I've had a hard life, that I've come from poverty and I've, you know, either risen above or ended up in jail, you know. And, um, you know, while that is, it's a valid narrative, I think for my, particularly for my memoir, I wanted to write about middle-class Australia because I very much grew up in suburbia and I think that's a really interesting, you know, we often when we talk about racism, we talk about rednecks, you know, reclaim Australia, people who potentially don't have a, you know, a high level of education, whereas I wanted to talk about this kind of casual, insidious racism that you get in suburban Australia that is very much not explored. And so I guess I've tried to find ways of doing things differently um, in terms of the, you know, the narrative and what my story is and trying not to play into that kind of um, narrative that everyone wants you to write because it, it sells. It does. And how do you do that while managing to have a, a family and, and two children? <laughs> I don't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I think I think you know, like that. That's kind of almost true. You know, you, I think as a creative person, particularly up until about four years ago, I was working a legal job as well. That's kind of my other career, and so balancing that, how much can I of my creative self can I give before it starts to impact on my family time or impact on the other work that I'm doing? Um, I've been lucky enough that in the last year and a half, I've been able to actually make a living off writing and teaching and speaking and things like that, which makes it a bit easier. Um, but, you know, it's just, I guess I look at it as, as work. You know, it's fun work, but, you know, I look at it as a job. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but um, <laughs> I guess sort of finally, um, what I found in Australia that even though the community of writers of colour is really small, the community is really strong. I was guess I was just wondering like how have you found um the support of other writers of color in Australia to be especially in getting published and getting jobs. I think it's been absolutely extraordinary. Um you know for me um when I was trying to get foreign soil published, you know I needed to get people to endorse it, you know, um so quotes that you put on the cover or whatever. So approaching people like Alice Pung and Randa Abdul Fattah, uh, Tony Birch, people who are, you know, have been working in that fiction world or non-fiction world as writers of colour for a very long time. And they were just so generous and so ready to give of their time and supportive. And um, I do think that even though the community is small, there is this sense of solidarity. We all recognise how difficult it is. And when someone new comes along, it's like, yeah, you know, <laughs> another person's made it through the door. Quick, pull them in, you know. <laughs> so I think it's great. You know, there's a real sense of camaraderie there. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I've, I've noticed it myself just by messaging someone like you for example i mm. messaged you a few weeks ago and said can you come on the race card and you're like sure what time when, <laughs> yeah. what, you know and and is that easy and and, yeah. and people listening at home or wherever you're listening in the car or whatever you know you can listen wherever you want uh you know just message someone send mm. them shoot them an email um whatever it is and you know you'll be surprised by the response you mm. you really will be and and finally thank you so much maxine for coming thank on the you. show thanks for having me it's been great <laughs> What's going on, people? This is Akala, and right now you're listening to the race card. Big up. You're listening to Sin 90.7 FM, and we are the race card. Yes, um, now we're going to be going into the week that was. And with me to do this all, obviously, is Runda T. Hi there. Still hey, here. I'm yeah. still here, yep. yep. <laughs> and uh, we're going to be going to the week that was. The Oromo protests have been gaining momentum on social media, especially after news that the Ethiopian government want to extend the city of Addis Ababa. And, you know, I think, why is this a big deal? Um, you know, Ethiopia is one of the, the more elegant places to go in Africa, the gold standard, if you will, of African development as the only African nation not to have been colonized by the West. And I guess the... I guess the issue that I'm that I'm thinking is, you know, usually we think of Ethiopia as this great place, and you know, the the Oromo, a group of Oromo people in Australia made a video, and we're going to show this to you in a moment. It, obviously, we're only going to be showing you the audio, but I still think it's powerful and it sheds light into some of the the issues that are facing Ethiopia right now, especially um, about the Oromo people, the indigenous people of Ethiopia. The land of coffee beans, 
the only African country that was never colonised by European powers. The cradle of humanity. The inspiration for Drake's East African Girl. A place where they eat the flat sour bread that nobody knows the name of. One of the fastest growing economies on the African continent. This narrative of the all supreme. Never failing. Ethiopia rising only really tells one story. And that story does not represent a majority of Ethiopia's population. In fact, the majority of Ethiopia's population, the Oromo, are not represented in many parts of Ethiopia's history. Are not represented now. And as things stand, won't be represented in the future. Weeks ago, protests broke out across Ethiopia's Oromia region. Oromia was a land colonised by Abyssinian settlers over 100 years ago with the help of European powers, merging many indigenous lands together and calling it Ethiopia. So, why are students protesting? Because the Ethiopian government has reintroduced a plan to expand the capital city known to the world as Addis Ababa. But known to the indigenous owners of the land, the Oromo, as Finfinne. Over the last 10 years, Oromos have lost 2 million hectares of land. And this plan to expand the capital city will lead to the displacement of over 2 million more Oromo farmers. The historical expansion of Addis Ababa has already seen several Oromo clans disappear. And this is only going to continue if nothing's done. And as a result of this very real threat of economic and cultural genocide, university students, high school students, and primary school students have made up a majority of those leading protests across the country. Oromo athletes, farmers, and the residents of the towns a threat have joined this call for justice. But nobody's listening, especially the Ethiopian government. Peaceful protesters are being killed, beaten, and arrested. Routinely. Systematically. And this is an all too familiar story. In May last year, similar demonstrations erupted, again led by peaceful student protesters. Dozens were killed, many more were injured, and hundreds were arrested. Some are still behind bars. Without being charged or given the right to a fair trial. And it's happening again. But this time, the call is louder, clearer, and more powerful than ever. Students are chanting messages declaring that if their ancestral land is taken away from them, then they really have nothing left to lose. So what do we know for sure? We know if there's anything that's going to make these Ethiopian leaders reconsider its violent dissent against these students, its collective global dissent. We are well aware that making this video is not going to stop the Ethiopian government from moving forward with these land grabs. But maybe. Just maybe, if they know the world is watching. They'll think twice before gunning down high school students for exercising their basic human rights. So get on Twitter using the hashtag OromoProtests. And help us put pressure on the BBC, Routers, Associated Press, Al Jazeera and CNN to help amplify the voices of East Africa's largest ethnic population as they call for justice. I stand with OromoProtests. I stand with the OromoProtests. I stand with the Oromo protests. I stand with the Oromo protests. Do you? The Oromo protests have been going on for some time and on Friday, a group of... Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Australian uh, Oromo people came together in protest of, um, of what's going on in Atopia right now. And on the line we have um, Soreti Khadir, who is co-founder of Inner Words, an NGO catering to the African diaspora. And Soreti was one of the organizers of the protest and we'll be we're calling her right now and see if she'll be answering her phone let's fingers are crossed v, you know new calling service let's hope it's working bring 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 but and here is sorry hi sorry you you there yes i am thanks for coming and joining us and i guess um why isn't this image of utopia ever presented to i guess a global a global audience Sorry, can you repeat the question? I didn't hear that. Why isn't um, the, I guess this this utopia ever presented to the global audience about what's happening to um, Oromo farmers, what's happening to Oromo people in general mm. in in utopia? Well, I think it's because um, Ethiopia's narrative, as it stands now, as it's received now by most of the West, is the narrative that depicts the the picture of the entire continent to be one of development and uh, to be one of, I guess, progression in, with, with the assistance of, 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 Western, um, of Western money. And it's an example that you know, America and Britain often use as you know, this, this pinnacle of success, um, this pinnacle of development, specifically development, you know, especially in relation to the Millennium Development Goals that passed. And so painting a different picture of Ethiopia would, would contradict this entire idea and would be completely, um, completely useless to powers like Britain, powers like the US. And so, and because they control these these media outlets that we want to be reporting about oral more farmers and about oral more students, and, you know, it doesn't serve them. And it serves, it serves, it serves justice and it serves, you know, I mean, equal representation. And we know that's not what mass media is there to serve. I guess um, for listeners unaware of the situation, could you give us a brief history of the Oromo people and their standing in Ethiopia? Yeah, definitely. So um, Oromo people are the largest ethnic population, indigenous population to the Horn of Africa. Um, in Ethiopia um, alone, they make up about 40 million, 40 million people. Um, and this is about 70%, 70 to 80% of Ethiopia's population. And before this idea of Ethiopia was ever created, just like all countries in Africa are fabrications of European, I guess, ideas of lines and borders, um, Ethiopia was just scattered indigenous lands that, that, that belonged to many different indigenous clans and in many different indigenous groups. And these were pulled together, a majority of which was Oromo land, and then it was called Ethiopia. Um, and so for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, Oromos have lived under Abyssinian rule. And this rule has changed, you know, from empire to empire. And they now uh, have been living under the rule of a government that calls itself democratic, but it is not very democratic as, as we see now. Um, it's been in power for 25 years and it's made up of minority ethnic groups, um, the Tigray people. Um, and this is, this is the people group that, come, that make up most of the, the ruling party at the moment. And as it stands in Ethiopia, one of the biggest crimes that you can commit is to not identify with the ruling party. But in order to identify with the ruling party, you need to identify with, with the ruling ideology, which is inherently Abyssinian supremacist. And so just being an Oromo, not even having political views that, you know, are about 
independence and self-determination and everything, just being an Oromo is contradictory to, to the ideology of the ruling party. And so this is the reality that Oromos have lived under for a long time. I mean, it wasn't even until 1901 that Oromos could speak Oromo without going to jail or being killed. And so the Oromo identity, the Oromo existence is something that Abyssinian rule has tried to erase um, from the societal fabric of Ethiopia for hundreds of years. Given that history and, and, and what you've said that's been going on for, for hundreds of years, what is different now? What is, what's leading this new movement that's leading young people in the diaspora mm. to, to protest so heavily? Well, I mean, let's begin with understanding that these protests didn't begin in the, in the diaspora. The diaspora protests are solely in solidarity with protests that are being led in the country at the moment by Oromo students. The reason these protests are being led, and this isn't the first time we've seen them as well, the first time they broke out was last year in May. The reason they broke out is because the government introduced a plan um, known to them as the Addis Ababa Integration Plan, which is to expand Addis Ababa um, by 20 million more hectares of land. And this means displacing 20 million farmers that um, reside in towns around Addis Ababa and also erasing the identities of these towns, which are, a lot of them are distinctly Oromo. And so this is threat to livelihood, this is threat to identity, this is threat to culture, um, and it's investment in assimilation and investment in land grabs. And so uh, after last year's protests, they broke out, we did the same thing, solidarity protests across, across the country, and then the government kind of backtracked a little bit. But this year they've reintroduced that plan, um, and the same reaction by students, but this time a lot heavier and a lot more sustained. We've seen that the protests have broken out now over a month ago. So they're still going and they're only getting larger and larger and larger in number. Um, and that means that more and more people are being killed, more and more people are being brutalized, more and more people are being arrested. So really the, the reason why people are protesting in Ethiopia at the moment is because their land is at threat, their identity is at threat, and their future is at threat. Essentially, land is livelihood to a people that have had everything else stripped away from them. And it's not livelihood in just the economic sense. It's livelihood in the ancestral centers, and this land is often passed down, you know, through through long lineage, and is the only connection that a lot of Oromos actually still have to the indigenous land, you know, which is which is what a lot of you know cultural practice is is based on, and cultural ideology is based on. So, land is important, and it's and it's being grabbed from Oromos, and that's the issue right now. Also, um, to come back to what's going on in right now, and, and what you're doing on the ground in Australia. You are also a co-founder of In Our Own Words, and they hosted an event called Black Voices, which I, which I was also a part of. How was the day, mm. and, and, and tell listeners um, what Black Voices was about. Yeah, so Black Voices um, was the first convention or first large-scale event that In Our Own Words have, have had. This has been around, it's been around for a year now. And so the basic premise of the underlying premise of the event was to connect, mobilize, and empower the Black African diaspora. Um, and so it was an amazing day. I'm only really just re- getting the chance to process and reflect on it now. It has, you know, it's just kind of happened for me. And it's, it was a year in the works. It was a lot of work, in, not in the sense of it was hard work, but in the sense of it was work that you just don't do with that little resource. It's often deemed impossible. And so the fact that it happened in itself was such a huge success. We had Akala from the UK. We had Solomon Lema from the U.S. We had Shola Amu from um, the UK um, and who brought so much insight um, and so much expertise and so much experience to the conversations that were being had. And then we also had incredible local speakers um, like Gary Foley. We had um, Samira Farha. We had 
um, Indigenous rapper Jim Bluff, um, and it was hosted by a fashion curator, art curator, Natasha Janelle. So, I mean, it was an incredible day of connection. And what I was really impressed by was the fact that it was seven hours long and we had an entire room, over, I would say over 200 people, but I, I don't actually know exactly how many people were there, engaged that entire seven hours in just conversation um, and panel discussions. So it was brilliant. I really, yeah, I think it was a huge success. I was there and I can test, I, I can, I can, I just echo everything you said. It was an amazing day and I'm, and I'm also just getting over it as well. And yeah, mm-hmm. ho- I, hopefully things like this just continue to happen in Australia. Thanks, Oreti, for coming hopefully. on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. That was uh, Sareti Khadir um, from In Our Own Words talking to us about Black Voices as well as um, the Oromo protests. And you can get more information about the Oromo protests by searching hashtag Oromo protests on, on Twitter or Facebook and, and all social media. Um, and, and now going, going, going somewhere else, going somewhere new, not really new, the States. We're going to talk about, oh, Donald, oh, Donald, well... <laughs> Mr. Trump has put his foot in his mouth again, but when isn't he? You know, um, recently he's uh, he's called for a ban, and well, I hope I'm pretty sure people can imagine who he's referring to in in in, in this ban he's he's talking about. Here's a clip from um, a speech he made for his loyal loyal listeners and audience um, in the states a few days ago. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. We have no choice. We have no choice. We have no choice. Yes, you know, he has no choice but to ban all Muslims. Doesn't he, Arundhati? Totally, no choice at all. Definitely no, not. <laughs> like, Muslims just need to be out of there. Like, yeah. it's, it's pretty obvious. Like, you know, I, I, when, I, when I heard I was like, mm, Trumpy, Trumpy, Trump. I don't even want to go to the US, you know. I don't want to go to a, uh, to a cultural imperialist land that um, is a settler colonialist land that, uh, you know, still you know, uh, commits genocide to the indigenous people of the land, the Native Americans. And you know, I don't I don't think that's a very nice place to go. I, but ju- that's just me. But, you know, there's been some backlash around it here. Yeah. Um, did you find something fishy about that? Like, <clears throat> about Trump? You know, this, this week, um, The Daily Show's Hassan Minaj uh, put a few pieces together about Trump. And, you know, it, it revealed something very interesting. Second theory, and I think this is where the evidence points. Donald Trump is an extremist leader who came out of nowhere. He's self-financed, recruits through social media, attracts his followers with a radical ideology to take over the world, and is actively trying to promote a war between Islam and the West. Oh my God, Hassan, he's white ISIS. That's right, Trevor. Donald Trump is white ISIS. Wisis. 
That's kind of catchy, Wysis. I like that. <laughs> the big question is, though, what can we do to combat Wysis? It's very simple. Can I be real? Can I, can I be real, Trevor? I mean, I just... Be real. Yeah, I just want to be real. Just, just be you, man. Be real. Where are all the moderate white conservatives? I mean, come on. They got a responsibility to step up and speak out against Wysis, because I'm sick of this. Yeah, but ha Hassan, in fairness, conservatives have already spoken out against Trump. Here it is. Jeb Bush called it unhinged. Chris Christie, ridiculous. John Kasich, divisive. Marco Rubio, offensive. We're now going to violate the constitutional rights of citizens because of Donald Trump? I don't think so. I do not comment on what's going on in the presidential election. I will take an exception today. This is not conservatism, not what this party stands for, and more importantly, it's not what this country stands for. You see, Hassan, conservatives don't stand behind Wysis. I don't know, Trevor. I, I just... I just don't buy it. I still don't feel safe, so... Look, I know there's just a lot of nuance to the situation, and every conservative isn't the same, I know. But it's just easier on my brain to be irrationally afraid of an entire group of people. <laughs> so... Until we can figure out what's going on here, I, Hassan J. Minaj, say we should not allow any conservatives into the White House. You know... I think he's got something there, you know. Like I, I, I'm just saying, you know, like, if, if, like I, I don't know. I don't feel safe around, you know, conservatives. You know, just, you know, they, they're just saying a lot of like Tony Abbott, right? You know, mm. Donald Trump. You know, like all conservatives are the same. Totally. You know? you know, like Donald Trump's white ISIS. He's ISIS, and you know, like I don't know. Even though you know there might be people condemning his actions, I'm just saying, you know, yeah. are they doing enough? Yeah, are they all the same underneath, underneath their? You know, is this just a veil attempt to you know to get at Muslims? You know, what totally. I mean, like I don't feel safe. That's mm. why I'm not going to America. I don't. I just genuinely do not feel safe. Fair enough. Yeah. After this, you know, you know, it's just, ridiculous. It is. It is. You know, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> moving swiftly on. Um, a few months ago, uh, there was a, there was an article written about Muslim schools and the mistreatment of young Muslim girls. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, amongst the speculation, uh, Lamis um, uh, Lamis Hamoud wrote an wrote an interesting article about her experiences at El Taqwa College. Um, and you know, I I also went to Islamic school, and I have a lot of stories about that. But but also. When we talk about Islamic schools, it's difficult to navigate what discussion we're going to have. But um, to help us do that is Lamise. Hello, Lamise. Are you there? Yeah, Lamise. Yeah. Hi, Lamise. Um, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, and, and I guess, you know, when we talk about Muslim schools, it's difficult to kind of talk about them in a, in a frank and, and, be, and critique them whilst being wary of the, the, the latent Islamophobia that's, that, that's presently out there. Yeah, that's true. It is very difficult. It's a difficult space to navigate. But that's just generally in all types of critique of our community. Definitely, because uh, I I know um, if I like I've got some stories about when I was in when I was at when I was at uh, my school. I'm not going to name names, but yeah. I, I remember um, when we were at school, the women um, the women at the school, um, women and young girls. Um, say for example, they, if they were tucking in their scarf, they were told not to tuck in their scarf because 
you know, they're attracting boys, you know, they're making their breasts look bigger. Um, and, and that's what some of the things that were, that um, some teachers said. And, and I guess the, these are things that these small little things obviously happen. Um, uh, but how do you find, because I, I know when you wrote that piece, a lot of people came, came at you. A lot of people criticized you and a lot of people in the community maybe ostracized you. How, I guess, how do you, how do you find talking about these issues without with, with trying to be with your community, but also critique it in a sense? Yeah. Um, wow. I guess like, um, it's also about being sensitive to your community and like also being careful about what spaces you choose to, um, access in order to air grievances or to make critiques. And I guess one of the, the most difficult things is the fact that it is hard to find places internally within the community where you can express um, concerns. And I guess like the, what I find was one of the biggest issues with the article was the fact that, you know, um, taking it to a mainstream media organization that does not necessarily have the best intentions or agendas. Um, and, you know, having, you know, my voice filtered through that sort of, um, that sort of media arm. Um, and I, you know, I look back on it now and it, it's a lot of it also seems, you know, quite unintentionally imperialist as though like, you know, coming down and telling a community how to behave and, and conforming to some sort of like Western norms when, you know, that's obviously, that wasn't my intent, but I can see how it comes across that way, particularly when you access um, particular media outlets. And it's just about then finding ways, how do we in our community address our own issues? Because we understand the culture and the issues behind it. We understand where these behaviours are coming from, why these girls are being told not to tuck in um, their hijabs and, you know, all that sort of stuff. While to an outsider, you know, they can manipulate that sort of information um, because they don't understand where these sort of issues actually stem from. Um, I, you know, and I agree. And, and it's the kind of thing where people divorce things from context um, yeah. and the kind of thing where, you know, it's, there are, there is lots of misogyny among, among, among Muslim people, as well as there a lot of misogyny among Christians and uh, among a lot of people. And I guess the way it works is differently in different contexts because it's coded differently. Um, but yeah. how, uh, yeah. Oh, no, continue. Please continue. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I was saying, um, and like for me, for example, like I I know there was instances where I associated Islam and and, and tried to make it into this, this, like it's just with any religion, there's there's a sense of conservatism amongst that when we can take a number of different viewpoints with that. Um, And it's about trying to have a discussion without being put down and also without, as you said, having media arms um, filtering the message. Yeah, totally. And also to always remember um, that, you know, that's also your own subjective experience and that none of us really ever come from any type of objective critique, you know. Um, it's all it's all grounded in our own context and our own understandings and our own experiences. And, you know, I've spoken to other students who've been like, but, you know, your experiences didn't reflect my experiences. I never felt that at the school. So what gave you the right to to then talk about the school that way? And I was like, you know what? I'm really glad you said that because actually you're right, you know, and that 
that made me realize how sometimes we have to be really careful when we do critique to not then silence others and to not then present our own voice as the as the like overarching or the only voice um and to remember to to remain subjective and I mean like you know you learn like for me I've learned a lot from obviously the experience and I I do like um feel bad for the repercussions that it had but at the same time you know um (laughs) yeah basically that's it yeah and I, I guess the only sometimes the way to get things started is by talking about it as loudly as you can and obviously we don't we're not static in our opinions and our views there's always mm, room totally. for change and as you said like um initially when i read when i read your piece i was thinking is that the best avenue um and, and all those things and are you being manipulated and is your 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 um your arguments being filtered down because obviously the editorial process and what have you with big uh media companies and and and, stuff, and, and those issues um that come with that um mm. how how do you how do you how do you feel now since um, a few months have passed since you wrote that piece and and your and I guess your impressions with people you've spoken to since? Um, I guess like the biggest thing I've taken from it all is that um, I really want to stop directing energy outwards. And I mean, and if that's what Islamophobia I find, that's what it does is that it keeps forcing you to direct your energy outwards um, and not just that, but at the same time, it also silences you. So on the one hand, when you like, when you critique, you then are scared to critique because you're worried that it's going to fall into that sort of a narrative. So then you're silenced. But then when you do speak out, it falls into that narrative and then your voice is like, it's wasted, right? So I think the most important thing is then to turn inwards into our communities and to just work on ourselves and to work on our own communities and to work within our own spaces um, and to try and stop wasting so much energy um, fighting against or like speaking out or talking against all these forces um, because it just, it, our energy can be used towards building ourselves and building our own strength instead of trying to change um, these outside issues and these outside forces that are just really, I don't know if they're ever going to go away. Thanks, Amis. Um, it's been really great speaking to you and thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, no worries, Ahmed. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. That was Lamis um, talking about uh, Muslim schools and and I guess the issues the issues with talking about your community outwardly. And I, I know if I if I spoke about uh, um, outwardly of my experiences at Muslim schools, they would be taken um, um, without context, without the context of there being many different ethnic groups that are Muslim. There are. Uh, many different schools of thought. There are conservative Muslims. There's fundamentalist Muslims. There's um, more very uh, socially quote unquote progressive Muslims, or whatever that may be, and and divorcing it of any context. Totally. I mean, the same thing happens. I mean, a similar thing happens, I guess, within the Indian community for me when we talk about um, arranged marriages, and you can't talk about those things like um, Lamis said about talking about things outwardly. It's not possible. Because, yeah, the message will get hijacked and it's very hard to be honest. Definitely. So, yeah. But even with arranged marriage, uh, like, literally, arranged marriage is basically mm. your mum or your, your, or your any parent whatsoever um, saying, hey, hey, kid, mm. 
there's this, there's this person I know um, that that's interested in, in seeing someone. Um, here's the number. Here's their mess. Here's their details. Exactly. You did the rest. It's not necessarily negative. No, I mean, it's not um, negative. But this is the thing. Like, I, I guess mm. it's like with anything is with arranged marriage. It, it's about creating the the agency of mobility and mm. being able to kind of like do what you want with yeah. with whatever it is. Like arranged marriage is basically online dating. Totally. Just with your parents involved exactly. or, or or a family member, and they're just saying, hey, you know, there's this person right here. Mm. Like my mom said to me, uh, if if my mom wanted to arrange a marriage with me, she would just say, "Hey, Ahmed, here's this woman. You know, you're getting around that age of marriage. <laughs> you know, uh, um, if you want to, if you're interested, here's here's their number. Mm. Um, give them a call, set up a meeting, and you know, see how you go. It's it's, it's basically just like that's it. There's there's other kind of like a, there's a very westernized mm. idea of I that guess as the, well. Um, Western narrative is of forced marriage, yeah, which. Basically is clearly obviously negative, but that's not the manifestation in all senses. That said, also, I mean, arranged marriage is also, you know... I mean, I think the thing from this discussion is that, I guess, patriarchy is global. It's going to manifest in almost every single culture and every religion in different ways. It's going to be coded in different ways and it's going to be translated in different ways. And we have to find ways to talk about those things in our communities without other communities, specifically the West, hijacking them and you know, I guess scapegoating their misogyny onto other cultures. Boom. And I think that's a great way to, to end the show. Um, thanks for, for, for you listening at home or in the car or on the train or walking home or wherever you <laughs> might be. Um, you Remember, you can, you can you know, if, if you want to, you know, go back and, and listen to our other shows, you can um, by searching us on iTunes um, uh, which you can find us at um, by searching the race um, race card you can find us on uh, this is me shuffling some papers um, <laughs> you can find us also on um, Mixcloud by searching race card Twitter by search by using the handle at the race card and at the race card yeah the race card <laughs> I'm not very good at this am I no. and and Facebook forward sl- facebook.com forward slash race card show uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ahmed Yusuf 10. I'm pretty sure they can find you also. On the yes, day. you can find me at Ram Lakshmi. And yeah, that's our show for this week. Hope you've enjoyed it and goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Bye. Bye.